All right, we don't want you to get to know each other too well. <clears throat> Carolyn and I are glad to be back home. Man, I think I need a vacation to get over my vacation. We were in about 11 states and 10 different beds. By the time I got home, my back was killing me. And you know, we went to visit family, and one of those was to visit my brother on his 80th birthday. And he didn't know I was coming. His kids had a party for him, and um, we drove up and parked down the street, and I called him on the cell phone, and I said, Bob, I wanted to say happy birthday. He said, that's great. Thanks. It's great to hear from you. I said, are you doing anything special? And I'm walking up the sidewalk, and he says, uh, well, the kids are having a little party for me. He's standing out in the backyard of his daughter's house, my niece's house, and it's a beautiful backyard, and then he's standing back there with the family, and they're mingling around. He's talking on the cell phone. I say, how's your weather out there? And, he, and by this time, I'm walking up the driveway, and he says, it's great, and I get about 25 feet away from him, and his son-in-law taps him, and he turns around, and there I am. And the picture is just precious. Uh, he drops the cell phone, runs over to me, and, and it's all on video, and it was really, really great. And uh, we had a wonderful time together. Uh, you know, he's 80, and, and I'm old. <laughs> In fact, I was 74 the other day. And so uh, he, we, we had dinner one night at a restaurant, and uh, he leaned over the table after dinner, and he cleared the table. He said, okay, now let's just sit here and talk, because we may never see each other again in this life. And uh, so uh, it was great. We had a wonderful time. If you have other questions about some of our conversations with him and all of that, I'd be happy to talk to you later. Um, so Carolyn and I went from Corvallis to Idaho, Idaho to Portland, Portland to Seattle, Seattle to Newark, New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey down to Whiting, New Jersey, Whiting, New Jersey up to Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania up to Upper New York, South New Berlin. The town is. And uh, from South New Berlin over to New Hampshire to visit our niece and her husband. He's a pastor out there. From New Hampshire back down to uh, uh, Newark and Newark back to Portland. And we got back into Portland about noon on Thursday. Uh, took our friends out for dinner where they graciously allowed us to park our vehicle in their driveway and for lunch, took them out for lunch and then got in the truck and headed home and we turned on the radio and started listening to this awful news of the events in Douglas County at Umpqua Community College on Thursday morning. And the more we listened, the more our hearts broke and uh, we wept together, and 
I almost had to pull over because it was hard to drive and and listen to it all. And uh, I suddenly realized that the evilness of our world has come close to home. These are our neighbors just a hundred miles south. And I'm not sure yet whether anybody in our church is directly impacted because I've only been home a few days. But I can realize that this thing stretches out very, very far. And I would like, uh, I would like to take a moment and pause and pray for those families and for those people and for that community. Um, this is going to be with us for a very long time. And there are people there who are going to be impacted for the rest of their lives. And I think we ought to pray for them. So let's bow together and pray. Heavenly Father, we are encouraged with the reality that you are in charge of the universe. We, we are thankful, Father, that you know the future. You know the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. You, you are omniscient. You are omnipresent. And, Father, we are thankful that you are uh, called in Scripture the God of all comfort. And uh, today, Father... We come into your presence bringing people. Some of these people are hurting physically. They are actually been wounded physically. They are in hospitals or they are at home recuperating. Some of them, many of them, Father, are hurt emotionally and psychologically. And that stretches out, Father, to family members to generations, to communities, to states. Uh, Father, uh, some of them are struggling spiritually. Some of them are asking, God, why, why did you allow this? And our Father, we come to you today hardly knowing what to say or how to pray except to throw ourselves and to throw these people, Father, onto the throne and to say, Father, will you bless them? Will you draw near to them? Will you please be the God of all comfort to them? Will you heal their wounds? And most of all, Father, will you draw to them? Some of them may not be looking for you, Father, but we pray that you will draw near to them. Help them, Father, to come to understand how much Jesus suffered so that they might have not life here on earth, but eternal life and glory. And Father, we pray today that you will move into homes. We pray that you will move into the school and all schools there. We pray that you will move into uh, the first responders, We pray, God, that you will make yourself evident. Because, Father, we know, both from Scripture and personal experience, that you can bring good out of tragedy. You are the God who changes circumstances. 
You are the God who changes lives. And we bring these people, Father, not one of whom I know a name, but we bring them, Father, to the throne. And we ask you to become precious to them. Move into their lives and become a part of their lives. And we pray, Father, that you will bring healing to Roseburg, that you will bring healing to Douglas County, and that you, Father, will be the one who will bring good out of tragedy. So we give it to you, Father, and we pray that if we have opportunity to help in some way, that we will drop whatever we are doing to be able to become that help. So thank you, Father, for who you are today, because in the light of this kind of tragedy, sometimes you are all we have to hold on to. And God, today we've come to worship you and have done well. Thank you, Father, for our worship team and them leading us into good worship. And Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for truth. And that's what we want to talk about today a little bit, truth. And we pray, Father, that you will enable us to grow just a little bit more today so that we may walk more closely to you. And we'll thank you in Jesus' sweet name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you may want to turn to Matthew chapter 5. It's on your outline. You want to take your outlines out because we'll be checking you this morning to see if you've done your outline. Um, Henry VIII that was a colorful king in England. And in uh, 1521, he wrote a book entitled The Defense of the Seven Sacraments. Actually, probably Henry didn't write it. Probably John Fisher wrote it. And uh, probably Thomas uh, More wrote it. But uh, Henry put his name on it and got it published. And, and uh, in the process of that, in October of 1521, Pope Louis, uh, Pope Louis X dubbed Henry the Defender of the Truth. Pretty good title, don't you think? The Defender of the Truth. And Henry really liked the title. He walked around with smiles on his face every day. Nobody dared challenge him because he was the defender of the truth. But the court jester got wind of it. And you know what court jesters can do. And in discussion with Henry one day, he said, My good Henry, let thee and me defend each other and let the truth alone to defend itself. See, truth typically doesn't need a defense. And Jesus wants to talk to us a little bit today about telling the truth. That becomes the concept that he wants to communicate today. Remember, he is dealing with a lot of issues that the Pharisees have distorted. And uh, this is one of them, and I'm going to show you how. So let's take a look at the text, beginning in verse 33 
of Matthew 5, it says, Again, you have heard that the ancients were told. Ancients is um, 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 archaic. The, the word is the word is the Greek word archaos, and uh, so he's saying those archaic people, <laughs> those people of old, uh, you shall not make false vows but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now, there's passages in the Old Testament that talk clearly about us taking vows and us fulfilling those vows. Uh, That's really not what he's uh, after today. But uh, I say to you, but I even I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Oops. We can actually do that, can't we? (laughs) We'll talk about that in a minute. I mean, we can do it, but... It's purely temporary, isn't it? Uh, the old color's still there. No way to shape that. Uh, then he says, um, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and everything beyond these is of evil. The New American Standard says, of evil. What he actually means is anything beyond these is, you could say, from the evil one. If you're using an NIV, that's precisely the way it's translated. The uh, New American Standard Version is a little wooden and gives it to us straight. But sometimes we have to help you understand that. He's saying that anything you add to your discussion of yes, yes, no, no, uh, is of or from the evil one. It's interesting that the word that he uses for um, anything beyond there, anything beyond there, is uh, the Greek word uh, parisos. Uh, we, it's associated with parasite. I don't know whether Jesus is saying Liars are parasites. Uh, actually, some of us know that. We don't have to have Jesus tell us that. Uh, but uh, it's associated. So let's take a look then at what Jesus is saying. The first thing we want to talk about is the culture of the Pharisees. And what we, whenever we are looking at a passage, we have to try to put it into that culture and into that history, and into that geography. See, it becomes very important to look at it grammatically, uh, uh, culturally, historically, and geographically. It's important for us, and of course, contextually. We want to know, in fact, uh, what the, these words might have meant to those who were present at the time. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees as well as all of his disciples 
there in the Sermon on the Mount. And um, uh, so we need to put some history and culture to this to understand why Jesus addresses this this way. See, uh, in the Old Testament, oaths were often used. Uh, the Old Testament teaching on oaths is that you shall not make false vows, and that means don't perjure yourself. Do not be a liar, in other words. And in the Old Testament, perjury was strongly condemned. You can see that from several passages all the way back to Exodus 20, verse 7, in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not perjure oneself. An example of it is, as the Lord lives, as the Lord lives, uh, was an example of a binding oath in the Old Testament. You can see that in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Actually, uh, David used that phrase in 2 Samuel 19. Uh, actually, Abraham used that phrase in Genesis chapter 14 and Genesis chapter uh, 24. In Genesis chapter 14, verses 22 and 23, it says that Abraham swore by the Lord, and the word swear literally means to raise the hand to God. Uh, in fact, uh, some translations say uh, that Abraham raised his hand before the Lord. And that is a concept that has followed through all the way to the present day. If you go to a court to testify today, the first thing they're going to say is raise your right hand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And as a result, this is what was done in the Old Testament. It was a common affair. When I joined the military, I took an oath. And in order to take that oath, I had to raise my hand. And this concept is the concept of swearing as the Lord lives. It was a formula that was used frequently. Mosaic law permitted these kinds of oaths, uh, permitted oaths as part of daily commerce. In other words, if you were uh, going to sell something to someone, uh, you could say, well, I have half of it now, uh, but as the Lord lives, I'll give you the other half uh, next week. Uh, I'll bring the other half to you next week. You pay for it all now. Usually, that's the way it works. Uh, it was used in uh, selling matters, uh, settling matters in court. So there were oaths that were used in court. It's not unusual to take an oath in court. There's no reason why a Christian should not take an oath in court. In fact, Jesus, in, uh, in, in, in his trial before Pilate, was willing to take an oath. And, uh, and then uh, it was used in legal contracts. There are certain legal contracts where you have to say, I swear that what's on this contract is the truth and nothing but the truth. And in our day, that signature then is notarized. And so uh, that's the way it was used 
in the Old Testament. An oath meant that whatever a person promised and ratified by an oath, they were obligated to fulfill. So oaths were used in the Old Testament. They were used consistently, and they were used often. However, the Pharisees had different ideas about oaths. So let's take a look at the Pharisees and oaths and how they perverted the whole process. Here's the first thing. Any oath that does not involve God's name does not have to be kept. So unless they said, by the Lord God, or as the Lord lives, as as uh, Elohim lives, as Adonai lives, if that was not part of the oath, in the Pharisee's mind, it didn't have to be kept. So you could say, boy, as sure as the earth is here, I'll do that. He knew up front he didn't have to keep it. That, that was the culture in which they lived. They, they, they concentrated on the formula and not the truth of the matter. They developed elaborate ways to take an oath and not mean it or have to carry it out. They used all kinds of word games. Now, uh, if you see somebody interviewed on television, they might be asked a question by a reporter. And they might give a 10-minute answer, but never come close to an answer to that question. That's the Pharisees. See, they could talk all day long and never really deal with the truth. They could talk for an hour and not answer the question truthfully. And there was a culture of falsehood in which these guys lived, and I might add, in which we live. Uh, it's hard to get truth today. They formulated the right way to lie. What the Pharisees did with all these word games and this whole idea of making sure that God, God's name is not used in the thing, they formulated all kinds of formulas to make sure that God, they would come this close but they wouldn't use God's name. And as a result, they wouldn't have to do what they promised to do. In other words, they lied. In other words, they lied. So don't be shocked that they watered down the whole business of truth because they'd already done that with murder and adultery and divorce. Why wouldn't they water down the whole business of... And we've talked about all of those... Why wouldn't they water down the whole business of telling the truth or taking oaths or making vows? And that's precisely what they did. And Jesus is addressing the sidestepping of the Pharisees at this point. But in the process, we learn in this process and we learn how we may function as a result of this discussion. So let's take a look, look at the correction Jesus gives. And this next statement is going to identify that clearly. Here it is. No matter how hard you try to avoid some references to God, the whole world is his, and you cannot 
eliminate him from any part of it. In other words, God is everywhere. You want to teach your kids something really good? Teach them that God is everywhere. They cannot escape God. God is... Now, I'm not talking about a religion that would say God is in the bush. Therefore, I worship the bush. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what Jesus does here. But Jesus is going to tell us that God is everywhere. The whole thing belongs to him, and you cannot eliminate him. So the Pharisees, when they tried to make an oath and not put God's name in it, they were deceiving themselves because God's name is in it anyway. So here's what Jesus said. Make no oath by heaven because it is God's throne. So don't say, as sure as the heaven is up there, I'll be in prayer meeting next week. Because the fact is, is that God is in heaven. It's his throne. It's his residence. Make no oath by earth because it is God's footstool. See, we tend to think that earth is secular. But the fact is, God created it, and God has his hand on it, and God rules in it, and God knows what he wants to accomplish in every situation that happens on the earth. So God is there. You can't say, I'll get that project done by Sunday as sure as the earth is here. It doesn't work that way. And you can't say, make no oath by Jerusalem because it is God's city. It is the city of the great king. It is the city from which Jesus will rule during the millennial kingdom. And as a result, you can't even use... See, the Pharisees didn't want to use uh, God's name because if they did, they would have to keep the oath. So they used heaven, they used earth, they used Jerusalem... They even said from time to time, as surely as I'm here. So he says, make no oath by your own head. You can't even control the color of hair on your head. In fact, you can't even control whether you'll be here tomorrow or not. See, God has all of that in control. You cannot, in other words, in other words, you cannot exclude God from any part of your life. We'll talk about that again in just a moment. So the precise wording of a vow is irrelevant, and the vow is binding regardless of the formula. If, you know, I never... I never carry a note, a pad with me when I'm here at church. You know why? Because if you walk up to me and you say, Pastor Rich, I need to have a conference with you. And I say, okay, I'll call you. And I walk out of here and promptly forget that I told you that. So, you know, some of you already know. You come up and say, I need to talk to you this week. I say, call me. In the office. Because I'm going to walk out of here. I have hundreds of people in here. 
that want my attention on a given day, and I walk out of here and forget that it ever happened. I don't want to say to you, I'll call you, and then fail to do so. But see, if I say, I'll call you, that's a promise, and I have to do it. Otherwise, it was a lie. And so, let's take a look at the counsel that Jesus gives. Here it comes. Here's where, in these next two aspects, it becomes really practical. Kingdom people must be truthful and honest every time they speak. See, that's a little difficult for some of us. I have had the problem uh, over the years of telling a story and exaggerating the story. Especially when I first became a Christian. I could tell a story and uh, exaggerate the story. I could get home late and my grandmother would say, where were you? And I would tell her about a wreck that happened that never happened. I was a good liar. And uh, what Jesus is saying is that kingdom people are honest and truthful every time they speak. Kingdom people do not need to reinforce their words with a vow or an oath. See, we tend to do that. If I say to you, and I'm telling you a story... And I have to say to you, look, I'm not kidding now. This is the truth. You're going to say, I wonder when he doesn't tell me the truth. We say things like, scout's honor, I cross my heart. All of those are ways of saying, I wasn't telling the truth before, but this time I'm telling the truth. So uh, these kinds of things are not needed to reinforce our words. And here's an important concept. Your word is a reflection of what you think, your heart, and your character. You want to know what a person's character is. Listen to him for a while. If you want to know what a person thinks, what he's like on the inside, listen to him for a while. And the longer you listen to him, the more you will determine whether he has a strong moral character or not. Because what we say is what comes out of the inner part of us. And let me say one more thing. It's not on here. But let me say this. Profanity is never pleasing to God. Profanity is never pleasing to God. You know, Carolyn and I spent 10 days on the East Coast and every place we went, there was profanity. I don't know whether it's worse on the East Coast than it is out here in the West. Uh, but at a point in time, I said to Carolyn, I want to go back to where God is. Uh, because every place we went, there was profanity. Um, Profanity, especially in kingdom people, is never pleasing to God. So let's look at the conclusion. And here I think we have to get as absolutely practical as we can. Here's the first thing. Truth 
is absolute. Truth is absolute. Um, Our kids are taught that there are no absolutes. Think of that. There are no absolutes. That in and of itself is an absolute statement. Uh, Truth is absolute. There's no such thing as half-truths. There are only whole lies. There's not anything like a little white lie. There are only big black lies. Um, And as a result, we have to understand what Jesus is telling us is that truth is absolute. Here's the second thing. You cannot separate the secular and the sacred truth. See, what Jesus does is he takes the heaven, the earth, he takes my very body, and he makes all of that sacred. We tend to separate the the secular and the sacred. This is secular, so I don't have to act sacred over there. And that's not true, because there's the, everything is for the believer, especially, is sacred. Because God is everywhere in everything. And every place I walk, because the Trinity indwells me, I take God with me. And so we cannot separate the secular. You hear the concept secular and sacred. Now, there's actually no difference between them. And then you cannot evade the obligations and promises made. That's very important for kingdom people. In other words, if you promise to do something, do it. If you promise to be someplace, be there. And then ordinary conversation of the disciple must always be truthful, honest, simple, and unsophisticated. That's why he says, make your yes, yes, and your no, no. You don't have to talk for 15 minutes in there. It's either just yes or no. Isn't that what you'd like out of some politicians? Uh, But the fact is, they're going to give you a 10-cent answer that's uh, 15 minutes long, and they're not going to answer the question anyway. I think there must be a school for that. So he's saying simple and unsophisticated. And then the character of the disciple is to be such that an oath would be superfluous. Your word is your bond. Your word identifies who you are on the inside. Saying, I promise I'm telling the truth this time, does not help you. Because it makes people say, well, when wasn't he telling the truth? So the result is, our word is our bond. And then all conversation is lifted to the level of the sacredness of an oath. Everything that we say, Jesus is saying, should be the same level as if you take the oath. 
Raise your hand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? In other words, uh, social evasions, uh, conventional uh, suppressions, um, ego-boosting exaggerations, uh, um, insincere insincerity in promises, flippancy in sacred things. All of these have no place in the mind of God. He wants us to simply tell the truth. Um, and finally, and this is very important, observance or rather obedience to this injunction marks the disciple as unmistakably not of this world. That becomes incredibly important because God says we are not of this world. We are of another world. This this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Um, four boys got up one morning and they got spring fever and they decided to cut school for the morning. So they went and did something else in the morning and they went back to school after lunch. And they said to the teacher, we're sorry, but we had a flat tire and we couldn't make it into school. And they were surprised because they thought the teacher kind of bought into it. And she said, uh, well, that's fine, boys. Welcome back. We're glad to have you. Uh, but I should tell you, you missed a quiz this morning. So take your seats and get ready and I'll give you this quiz and we'll get that out of the way. So they all sat down in their seats. They got their paper and pencil out. And she said, here's the first question. Which tire went flat? I looked on the Internet to find out which are the most common or the most famous American fibs. Here they are. You know the first one. The check is in the mail. I'll start my diet tomorrow. We service what we sell. Give me your number and the doctor will call you right back. Not. Money cheerfully refunded. Here's, I love this one. Because I have a very small head. One size fits all. This offer limited to the first 100 people who call in. Your luggage isn't lost. It's only misplaced. Leave your resume and we'll keep it on file. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Uh, I just need five minutes of your time. Your table will be ready in a minute. Open wide, it won't hurt a bit. Let's have lunch sometime. It's not the money, it's the principle of the thing. All of those are commonly said in order to put people off. Adrian Rogers says, It is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. 
He says it is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. He went on to say it is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. He went on to say it is better to stand alone with the truth than to be wrong with a multitude. I just think that like everything else that Jesus is dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount, he's taking a moment to remind us to tell the truth. He's taking a moment to remind us to be people of integrity. That when we speak, people will know that what's inside of us is God himself. So when you take communion this morning, you're going to remind yourself that Jesus came, was crucified, buried, rose again the third day so that you could have this eternal life. And we do communion here every week. There's a communion station there, one back there, one back there, and one over there. And our worship team will come and lead us in a song. And you can take a moment to examine yourself. And maybe truthfulness will be part of that examination. I don't know. Um, And then when you're ready, you can go and go to one of the stations, get the bread and the cup, find a corner, take communion, or bring it back to your seat, take it at your seat and at your leisure, and you can commune with God while remembering what Jesus did for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for truth. You gave it to us in your word. Jesus said the truth would set us free. And Father, there is something freeing even about being truthful when we speak, when we talk to people. And God, I don't think there's a lot of liars in the room today. But I do think, Father, that the evil one that Jesus spoke about here is always after us. He wants to lead us astray. So keep us, Father, in tune to you. Enable us, Father, to be people of truth and people of the truth. Thank you, God, that you are everywhere. Thank you that I can't go any place without the realization that you are there. It influences me. It causes me to function in a particular way. And God, today, we are thankful for who you are. You are the great God. You are You are the God of all comfort. And God, we thank you today for Jesus, your Son, 
and for this awful thing that he went through in order to redeem us. We owe everything to him. We pray that you will bless us as we take the bread and the cup and allow us, Father, to honor you in that process. In Jesus' sweet name we pray. Amen.